thrusters won't stop firing. I think I'm being followed. My dad is turning green, like literally green. My last nav check put me on the range point four. This is control. Be reasonable. Keep calm and remain on the guard frequency. Sits and civs, captains and commanders, you're tuned to the guard frequency. And as all good pilots know, when you're out in the deep black, you want to keep one ear on the guard. This is episode 137 of the Best Damn Space Sim podcast ever, and was recorded on Friday, September 16th, and made available for download Tuesday, September 20th, over at guardfrequency.com. I'm Ostron. I'm Kenjano. And I'm Jeff. And we have our newest team member, Henry, handling things in the audio booth for us. And we actually have some elite news this week, so... Maybe we'll drag him in for that. But what do we have this week, Jeff? Well, in this week's Squawk Box, we got some deeply sciencey guesswork to cover. On the flight deck, we see what news has landed from your favorite space sims as we cover finding ways to slim the download size of star citizen patches, mainly by removing the hidden planet side city. Yep, you heard right. All the changes coming to Elite Dangerous in the Guardian patch, as well as the results of a vote on the ship transport system. And our, well, Osterons, first impressions of the Everspace Early Access release. Speaking of early access, we'll then debate paying for early access, and finally we'll tune into the feedback loop and let you join in on the conversation. That takes care of the housekeeping, so let's get on with the show and see what's coming through the squawk box. Any of you boys need a carrier around here? Uh, everything's under control. Situation normal. Cryptor, Cryptor, Cryptor. This is Jeff saying welcome to the Squawk Box, everyone. Okay, Space Rangers, time to test your science skills. Which of the following are real science articles in a real peer-reviewed science journal, and which are not? Ready? First up, experimental characterization of lanthanum hexaboride. 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 Oh, hexaboride. Okay. Hollow cathode for 5 kilowatt class hull thrusters. Okay, you got all that now that I've screwed it up? Second, multi-physics finite element modeling of current generation of bare flexible electrodynamic tether. Right? Okay. Here comes the final one. Measurement of impulsive thrust from a closed radial frequency cavity in a vacuum. Have you spotted the fake? Okay, here's the answer. The first two are actual articles in the journal Propulsion and Power, published by the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. The third one is only a rumor. Did you guess right? I hope so. Now I'm going to tell you why we devoted the Squawk Box to teasing out a rumor. Because that not yet real peer-reviewed article is supposedly the one that will show us how Sir Isaac Newton was not the smarty pants we thought he was. The article, reportedly submitted by Harold Sonny White and Eagle Works Lab down at Johnson Space Center, reportedly details how the team verified the thruster effects of the M-Drive. Long-time listeners will recall us reporting on this contraption previously and will recall us being somewhat skeptical, but obviously more than happy to wait and see if someone had actually invented an interstellar drive system. Following their previously established pattern of not very scientific, shameless self-promotion, the lab teased the acceptance of their paper on the NASA technology blog on August 30th, then promptly deleted the post once someone called shenanigans. Devotees of the video game development will recognize the danger of promising features in an upcoming release and then failing to deliver. However, a few days later, the AIAA did confirm the paper will appear in the December 2016 issue. So, just in time for Christmas, guys. Where we heard that before. We kid, we kid, but even if you're published, it doesn't mean you're right. On the other hand, even though the M drive has yet to be proven to actually generate thrust, it definitely generates buzz. Two or three theoretical bases for the thrusters operation are getting argued about in nerdy corners of the interwebs. Things like virtual particle asymmetry and unruh radiation wavelengths. And even before the article gets published, there's plenty of excitement over at the M-Drive in the real world. A Pennsylvania company called Kinei Inc. 
run by one Guido Feta, <laughs> no, I'm not making that up, is planning to launch a miniature CubeSat into low Earth orbit with their version of the M-Drive installed. The test is simple. If the thing stays in orbit, the thruster works. And if the orbit decays, well, back to the drawing board. So that guy, that that Guido Feta guy, he's been talking about the Kine Drive for a very long time, and I I can't remember if he was first or the M Drive branding was first, but one of the, they came out I think around the same time, you know, a couple of years back, uh, being pushed really hard by um, both Eagle Works and this other company. Uh, I think he is more about the internal structure of the drive making a big difference. You look at their Kine Drive website, he talks about the fins inside of the cavity being what gives the microwaves their thrust or something like that. So um, it's a little more bullshit than the, the other tests, but at the end of the day, it's, it's all this weird violation of conservation of energy and momentum and things like that. Well, I, I don't throw anything out the window. I believe that there is science and technology that we haven't discovered yet that will give us things like warp drive and hyper, hyper you know. Yeah, the, problem that, the problem that I have with all of this stuff is it's still not been verified by anybody outside of this, this very small circle of people. And the levels of force output are just like insanely small micronewtons, right? It's really hard to measure. So... I still look at this with a highly skeptical eye until we see a couple other labs start putting this to the paces. I mean, there was there was one other labs, I think, and it was associated with Eagle Works from China that was doing something. But that was the last I heard. I haven't seen any other like reputable places actually putting this to the, the paces. Well, I don't think that any of them are, quote, reputable until we actually see something flying around or, or being actually tested and getting results back from there's lots of labs out there. There's lots of universities. I mean, like, well, why isn't there not an MIT lab doing this? <laughs> I'm sure there is, actually. They haven't published a paper on it. Yeah, but I, I don't read a lot of scientific journals these days. I mean... Well, we see a lot of these these articles, right? I mean, if multiple labs had started verifying that, that is a news story in itself. I imagine it depends a lot. Like you said, they're waiting for something that's testable because I'm betting that the math involved is probably highly speculative. I mean, not that that's a concept that usually applies to math, but... That's actually the biggest problem with all of this. No one knows why it works. There is no math. What they have is a random shape, right, that they're putting basically a microwave emitter inside of, turning it on, and then getting a force out of it. And they put it in a vacuum to make sure that there was, it wasn't actual just like air convection from the heating metal or something like that. But nobody knows why it's moving. There's not like a theoretical physics formula they're working backwards for. Now, the Kine guys, again, if you read their website whenever it's up, because it kind of goes up and down, it's just a lot of crap about fins internally, but it's just a theory and there's no math to back up any of this stuff. Right, which is probably why nobody else is touching it, because they're like, okay, all you're doing is, it's derogatory, but all they're doing is playing with toys. Yeah. So until they get some sort of measurable results that can be repeated, nobody's going to bother. Yeah, it's going directly from 16th century physics, right? Was you described Isaac Newton earlier, you know, we, we see an observable, observable result. We don't have any math to, to map to it yet, right? So... It's the exact opposite of how most physics is being done nowadays, where it's very unlikely that we see something before we've seen it in the equations. Right, which is probably, again, why other people aren't going with it, because experimentation is expensive. And if you've got large academic or even commercial science labs, they're going to have bean counters above them going, okay, you've only got X amount of dollars. What are you going to put it toward? Yeah, maybe that's it. And it seems like the Kine is throwing all their eggs in this basket. So I mean, that's their whole budget. They don't have anything else to spend on it. Whereas, like, the NASA JPL is going, okay, we could do this or we can figure out how to get people to the ISS without relying on the Russians. So, so where does do we know where Eagle Works gets its funding from? It's an independent lab inside of NASA or something like that? It's a little fuzzy in, in, on, on that whole chain of things. But it, they're part of NASA, but I think they're an independent lab. Yeah, that would probably require forensic digging. I don't know if the research badgers would agree to it. Let's put it that way. Well, not everything in science has an answer. Wait, 
uh, I don't know how to respond to that. Yeah. Let's leave it at that and just move on. Read, seen, or heard something you might find interesting to others in the spectrum? Send an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com. But for now, let's see what news has hit the flight deck. 3175 Port Bay, hands on approach, checker screen, call the ball. Don't get taken home with me. Our Star Citizen crowdfunding update for September 16th, 2016, 123828178 up about $509,000. Approximately 1.529 million registered accounts, up about 6,100. Approximately 1.092 million ships in the UEE fleet, up about 10,500. And speaking of Star Citizen, a few quick notes about news coming from the development team. For those who've lost track, CitizenCon is about three weeks away. The Drake Herald is coming out with the patch 2.6 and currently features the largest engine-to-mast ratio of any Star Citizen ship. That's really fast. The M50 won the fan favorite poll and as a result it went on sale for the week of the 12th. A new competition between the Super Hornet and Vanguard Warden followed. The winner of that one was the Vanguard. Now, CIG is doing a poll on bombers between the Retaliator and the Gladiator. Get on over and cast your vote. On the unofficial side of things, it's no secret that many Star System backers make a habit of ripping apart the code builds to pull out assets or mine for secrets. Recently, one digital spelunker happened upon what seems to be a massive planet-bound city buried in the code. The city itself is sitting on a temperate planet, or at least a temperate zone on a planet, and covers several islands and with city sprawl, punctuated by towering futuristic skyscrapers. The asset itself is labeled Terra Prime V2. That has people thinking that the city is meant to be a part of the planet Terra, but of course there's currently no way to confirm that. If you're interested in seeing the city and aren't skilled at pulling apart binary files or loading cryengine assets, the person who first found the city has uploaded a version of it online. That version has been significantly derezzed, so it's actually possible to view online, but reports indicate that even that version will severely tax your internet connection and your system memory. And this is what I'm downloading for days on end as each new patch comes out? I am... Yeah, apparently it's, I'm it's not buried pleased. in the regular code build. <laughs> There's a lot... Well, they've had a lot of mysterious things in the code builds before. If you guys remember way back when, Arc Corp was leaked way, way in advance because it was in the um, in the builds, and both I think Fiendish Feather and Disco Lando had pulled them out and made separate little projects out of Arc Corp before it came out. So it's not surprising that they've found uh, bits of Terra in the, the newest builds. Well, and it's not an uncommon practice either. You just have in the code builds, you have assets that you want in place for later. You just don't point any active systems to them. But of course, if somebody's ripping apart your code, they're going to find them. If you'll remember when the infamous Lando leak came out, you know, months ago, uh, there, you know, people found things like the Bengal and the F8 Lightning and things like that in there. They definitely, they're definitely picking things on their side to include in these builds and things that they definitely don't want to. And this is probably just a case of, you know, one thing was accidentally tagged that shouldn't have been in there. Looking at the screenshots of the overall picture, I didn't try going to the site and looking at the derezzed version, but it does look like a lot of the concept art we saw of Terra. That has to have been, what, a year ago or more? We actually saw 3D renders of Terra. Must have been like a year ago or more on ATV, where they were showing us some environmental effects on a landing platform. It wasn't even a landing platform. It was like a balcony on a Terra roof. And they showed us, they did like a 360 view. They didn't walk around or anything with that, but you saw some of those models at that point. Yeah, I vaguely remember that. I don't think any of this stuff is necessarily new. It's just new that it got included in a build and someone found it. Now the conspiracy theorists get to wonder whether it was included by accident or was included by accident on purpose. (laughs) Well, I think you're right. I think it was included on purpose. What gets me is that with all the people complaining about the large downloads, I mean, I what, it's 30 gigs every time I get a patch? And it takes, on my little 7 meg connection, it takes uh, days. So with all that, you think they would at least be aware of that it's in there every time there's a patch and that somebody ought to remove it until they get updates. 
you know, we already have it. I wouldn't get bent too much out of place on this particular thing. I think I, don't, I didn't see any textures in the pictures I saw. So this is likely just geometry data, which probably isn't all that big. Remember, though, a lot of the pictures were taken from a derezzed version, so it's possible. But it, I think it also might be they were expecting the, the iterative patching to already be up by now. So I'm, I'm making some Citizen Con t-shirts at the moment, and I just ripped all the textures out of the, the pack like, I don't know, like two minor revs ago. And there were no textures for any of the cities in the packs I saw. So there, I don't think it's all there. In my mind, this is more for beta builds than it is for alpha builds. What is? You mean the, the city itself? The city, yeah, all this added added data that's going into this. Well, there's a lot of stuff, again, that, they're not, that we know is not there, right? I mean, there's no Squadron 42 stuff, and that's all in the same engine. And there's lots of ships that aren't there that we, we have seen in leaked builds. So we know that they're... They're intentionally not including certain things. Why this particular thing was there, I don't know. But um, they are they are culling their stuff. Continuing your Space Sim polling report, this week in Elite Dangerous, the results of ship transfer polls are in. Lead designer Sandro Samarco posted the breakdown. With 38,045 validated elite accounts voting in total, 70% of the vote was in favor for implementing a delivery time component to the upcoming ship transfer feature. This means that when a ship transfer is requested, rather than it taking place instantly, there would be a period of time it must pass before the transferred ship was available at a new location. The poll's example delay was 5 minute minimum with 100 minutes to cross the human occupied bubble edge to edge. Debate continues on the forum and on Reddit about this decision, but the voting seems to have included a substantial fraction of the player base and been heavily in favor of the delay. Currently this feature is still slated for release in, with update 2.2, The Guardians. Though Sandro mentioned that changing the original conceived instant transfer to allow variable delays may, ironically, delay the feature slightly as well. Speaking of the Guardians, it's official. Beta access for update 2.2 begins Tuesday, September 20th, which should also be when this episode comes out. Those with existing beta access applicable to Horizons will be able to jump in right away with no further ado. Woohoo! Any other Horizons owners will have the option to add beta access in the Frontier Store for about £7 or $10. US Those purchasing access to this beta will also get beta access for the remaining Horizons expansions updates as well. For those who haven't been following the Guardians, this update will also include passenger missions as well as a new Beluga Liner. The above-mentioned ship transfer feature, new station interiors on some locations, improvements and customization options to the route planner, and ship launch fighter gameplay. Additionally, this week's newsletter introduced the new Powerplay faction leader, Yuri Grom, of the Dangerous Games winning EG Pilots group. Does this mean that EG Pilots will join in Powerplay with the coming of 2.2? I didn't vote even though I'm a lifetime member. I, I thought about it going back and forth. Did I want instant ship transfers or did I want a delay of some kind? And it got me to thinking that if you're trying to do stuff with your wingmates and stuff, that instant transfers would be the way to go because really that's, if they're just waiting on you, depending on the delay, they'll just go off without you. And so there you go. And since they had already coded that for instantaneous transfer, why do we care? The delay does sort of help with the immersion factor, though. Because lately, I've been playing a lot of X3, which is a space sim that eventually, depending on how you want to play it, you can end up being in control of a large number of ships. But part of that is, if you want to move a ship around, it actually goes through all of the different jump gates and stuff. Oh yeah, it, it's so. on autopilot, and it will, it, and it'll, it'll take some time, and that's and that's fine because that's a single player game. Yeah, I do get your point though about if you're in multiplayer, you'd sort of have to plan ahead for it almost. Does anyone know what, if any, of the arguments were in favor of the delay, like what people's angle on it was? I'm in favor of the delay, honestly. I like the idea that uh, you're going to get a different kind of player out near Jack's station, for instance, than you would 
if everybody could just instantly transfer all their combat ships up there. As it stands now, you're going to have to go there. You're going to have to get there the hard way with, uh, you know, getting a ship capable of making long jumps and refueling itself. You can't take, you know, that ship out there and then have all your combat fighters just meet you instantly. And it's just going to be a different population out there of ships because it's going to take longer to get uh, fighters out there. I agree with that because that's the other thing I was thinking of. There, you could be exploited, but you're only talking about one or two areas or maybe three or four areas where that might be a relevant factor and, and um, you're, penal, uh, you're almost penalizing other people for a very small fraction of the universe. Does it cost you extra money to bring it out to farther out places? Oh, I'm sure it will. Yeah, I think it was going to be based on distance. But, I mean, just from the time perspective, let's just let's say that's the limiting factor. They're saying between, you know, five minutes and 100 minutes. If I want to go take my cruiser out there or whatever, and, you know, I just fly my other ship out there, I pay my fee and I go eat lunch and come back. It doesn't really change the gameplay. It just changes whether you have a time penalty for bringing it out there. I mean, you have a point there. It's a... You know, I, I like the idea of a delay for immersion. You know, I like the idea that I'm I'm going to sit there and rendezvous with my ship that I've ordered and they're they're coming to me. You know, I'll, I'll role play that. That's going to be fun. One of the things you guys brought up the X series. One of the best things ever was rendezvousing with one of your ships that's on a on a trip and you go and find it and meet up with it. That will be missing from this implementation, and I think we'll we'll miss out on it there. But the delay doesn't bother me. I think it's going to be a good thing overall. The Beluga liner sounds like. Like a really expensive car upholstery. It's a gorgeous ship. It's huge. I mean, it's a, <laughs> talk about wanting to get up and actually walk around your ship. Oh my word! <laughs> but I can, I you know, somebody's going to turn that into a freaking uh, luxury cargo hauler. I just know it. They're not going <laughs> to. That thing is so big. They're they're just going to want to make tons and tons and tons of money off of of trading. They have a theoretical variance like the um, crew transport that had cargo bays and stuff. So it's not it's not entirely out there. I mean, it basically is a cargo ship that has seats in it. <laughs> Just looks pretty from the outside. Anybody else interested in the uh, passenger missions that are upcoming? I, I think that the only thing they're going to make the passenger missions work is if they really pay very well. And I mean really well. Because otherwise I think, you know, it's just it's just another cargo run. Yeah, probably. I'm, I'm looking forward to them because I'm not much of a combat pilot. Most of what I do is exploration and, you know, trading. So I'm looking forward to having more to do. It could be interesting if they tried to do more of a role-playing aspect to it. where Because like, I remember them mentioning that you can have demands from passengers to uh, adjust course midstream. So it'd be interesting if there was some sort of monetary decision-making tree. Like, if you had a group of... 10 or whatever passengers and a certain number of them wanted to go this way but then another number of them wanted to stay the course and your eventual pay rate would be affected by which one you chose have they said how that's going to be communicated will there be like a customer chat that you can monitor or is it like a from what i understand they'll use the the income like up in the upper corner they'll have you'll get a notice as far as uh, making demands, from what I also understand, it's going to be just the VIP passengers. It'll probably play out a lot, uh, a, very similar to the way uh, when you're on a delivery mission, you'll get a, an email in progress that'll say, hey, if you can make it before, you know, within the next 30 minutes, you get a bonus. Mm-hmm. It'll probably be something like that, but it'll say, hey, if you divert to this place instead, you get a bonus. I doubt they'd design a new system to do it. Two big features are coming to the Descent Underground Proving Ground this week. The less controversial one is that people will be able to customize HUD colors. The one getting more attention is the new 3D reticle. The reticle floats out in front of your ship and will change position if the target is closer to the ship than the default position. This lets you quickly know if your shot will accidentally intersect a nearby object, like a wall or perhaps your best friend, and blow back on your ship. But this is a bit controversial among the team. They are looking for player feedback on whether this new reticle actually helps or is really just too confusing to use. Now, I almost put this in news we didn't use, except that you wrote it up as a hellacious tease because you said it's controversial among the team 
and then didn't tell us what the controversy on the team was. So they so. they didn't tell us what the controversy was either. So this was during oh. on Wingman's Hangar, Commander Pixley wrote uh, created this new reticle, and apparently there are certain members of the team that do not like this reticle, and there are certain members of the teams that do like this reticle, and they wouldn't tell us why because they want people to use it. Then they want the community to tell them. They well, I think I'll have to log in tonight and find out. Yeah, so you, you you have to be a Proving Grounds member to see this, and I think it'll be in the patch today, I think, supposedly. But if you, you can look at the, the the video of Wingman's Hangar and kind of see what, how it's useful and why some people might not like it. The uh, the reticle is actually like multiple components, and as you move over surfaces, like the individual components will start shifting closer to you or you know getting bigger, basically. Um, as you hit them, so if you're if you're if you hit like an angled wall, then part of your reticle will be bigger than the other part, and you'll know that your 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 shot will begin an angle if you fired it and things like that. So it's interesting, but if descent can be kind of a fast game, so if you're if you're moving around a lot, you can potentially run into a situation where the you know, the reticle is doing all sorts of wonky things as you as you scan over surfaces and things. And so I think the the concern here is that maybe it's too busy, or maybe people get, will get confused as they're using it, or maybe people will. Um, I don't know how this plays into VR. Maybe it might be people sick if the reticle is flying in and out at them. Well, I remember way back at the beginning when uh, Star Citizen first put Arena Commander out, the targeting reticle on the ships was very pretty and very busy, and in an intense dogfight, it was difficult to make out what exactly it was doing or telling you to do. Yeah, the reticle also now changes has extra pips and changes color based on enemies and things like that too. So they're already packing quite a bit of information in that little, you know, couple of dots. So yeah, I, I, we'll see what people think. Well, as of September 14th, Everspace has gone into early access uh, release on Steam, featuring sweeping space vistas from all of their gameplay videos. And they put out a new release trailer to add to that collection and an FTL-like approach to the game progression and depth. PC gamers can add this game to their collection for $30 on Steam and GOG. There are only a limited number of reviews from players on either side, but so far, the aggregate is that the game is being praised. However, it is in early release, so the polish isn't all there. Starting up the game will immediately provide a list of features that are not yet in place, including at least two ships the player would be able to upgrade to, plot elements and the voice acting that goes along with them, and full VR support. According to Rockfish Games, the full game release is scheduled for Q1 2017. In lieu of putting the research badgers on this, our very own Ostron jumped in and tried the game out for a few hours. Ostron, what are your impressions? So, one of the biggest things that caused a bit of angst when this was first brought up as well as continuing on after that is that they stated they weren't aiming to make this a space sim so that immediately killed jeff's interest but it actually is it's not star citizen level but i would say their flight mechanics are sort of on par with the space sims from 10 years ago or so the controls are actually closer to, I, I've never played Descent Underground, but they're actually closer to a six degree of freedom control scheme because you're able to move the ship in all six directions, all three axes, roughly at the same speed. In just normal flight, you don't suffer any loss of speed or acceleration going side to side as opposed to forward and backward. For example, there was one system because if you take damage in the game, certain systems on your ship can be damaged as well as just the overall hull taking damage. And when I lost my inertial dampeners, the ship actually started to drift. Like I had to start accounting for taking extra time for the thrust to change the direction of where I was going. So they did include more space sim-like flight mechanics than I was expecting, and that was a nice surprise. It's definitely pretty. The vistas are very, very colorful, very active. The only downside to them is that there's always asteroids. Like, you come out of every jump in the middle of a dense asteroid field, or ice rock field, or asteroid field, except all of the asteroids are very thin and vertically arranged. 
Can you mine all the asteroids for thallium? You can mine very few of the asteroids, actually. But it's the gameplay's repetitive but not monotonous, if that makes any sense. Because you're always doing roughly the same things, but it's in a different enough circumstances so far that it didn't get boring. Like, it became more of a... They were familiar checkpoints. Like, when I saw certain set pieces, I always knew, oh, okay, that means there's probably this or... You know, this ship in space means I can trade for these items. But there are enough minor variations that it got difficult. For example, whenever you see an asteroid that's large enough to have caves to fly through, there are almost always collectible items inside of it. But what those collectible items are varies from time to time. And that's a big deal because this definitely resembles the game FTL. Did either of you play that? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So it works roughly the same way because you start out and you have a certain number of opportunities presented to you to upgrade your ship or gather materials, but they are completely different every single run. Like one run I played, I ended up, by the time I got out of the first sector, which is roughly four jumps and then you leave the sector, I got out of there and I had a massively upgraded shield system, a space shotgun on my ship, and a thing that would let me produce an impenetrable shield on my front facing for like 30 seconds. And then my next playthrough, I warped in, immediately got into combat with six ships, and died before I made one jump out. So it's it's very much a matter of luck, but it's not completely frustrating because of the system where in between your runs you can use whatever credits you gathered to give your ship permanent upgrades so i watched um i think it was the astro club astro pub play this and his description of the category was persistent roguelike where it's a roguelike where everything's random but that you keep all of your stuff do you do you find that to be true i'd say that's half true because they separated certain systems out. So I'd say like the larger categories are persistent, like how much hull your ship has, how much shield energy you have, how much energy you have to power your weapons. But the details are always different. Like if you upgrade a particular weapon system, you're not going to have that weapon system on your next run to start. What, sorry, explain that again. So if you if you upgrade your weapons, you don't keep them? Yeah, so like you start out, your basic armament is you have this like pew-pew gun, for lack of a better term, that does heavy damage to shields, and then you have a Gatling gun that does heavy damage to the hull. As you're flying, you can find either blueprints for or actual examples of other weapon systems. Like I mentioned at one point, I picked up that space shotgun mm -hmm. that was really close range but did a lot of damage if you could hit with all the projectiles. When I died on that run, I lost that space shotgun. So when I started again, I didn't have it on my ship. However, in between the runs, I can upgrade how much energy powers those weapons, and that persists from run to run. If you had made it to the end of the run with the shotgun, would you have been able to keep it to the next run, or would it always go away at the end of the run? I believe it always goes away. I haven't made it through everything. Um, I believe there are seven sectors to the full game at this point. I've only made it to sector four in my best run, and in that one I made it to the first sort of area in Sector 4 and then was immediately made into scrap metal. So I'd say for practical purposes, I've only made it to Sector 3. The other thing I want to touch on really quickly is there is a, some sort of a plot to this, which I was impressed with. And the main interaction is you, the pilot, talking to what I think is an onboard AI, either on the ship or the ship itself. And on occasion, the dialogue is actually impressively witty for a space sim that obviously doesn't have a whole lot of focus on plot. So I'm really looking forward to when they get the plot more fully fleshed out, because I think that's going to be a big plus to the game. Do you really think that, um, that this is a space sim, or is this something of another genre that just happens to be in space? I think the argument could be made for this to be a space sim. I don't think that if you take 
a hundred computer gamers and sat them at this thing, all of them would immediately say, oh, this is a space sim. Some would call it a... I mean, if you want to be really reductive, they would call it a really fancy 3D Galaga, because it definitely can have that feel at points. I would have no problem labeling this a space sim, although right now it's less there than I think it could be, because for one thing, the only control scheme I could get to work was keyboard and mouse. It wouldn't even recognize my joystick or even my gamepad. Apparently it recognizes PlayStation and Xbox gamepads, but it must be specifically those brands, because the control pad I have is in the PlayStation style, but it's put out by Logitech, and it wouldn't recognize the existence of it in-game at all. No, I look forward to checking it out. Yeah, and it, it's nice because it's just a quick jump in, play around, and then either go again or, okay, I'm done. So it's a good, you know, 15-minute break time waster. We need, we need more space-themed palate cleansers. Yeah. So now it's time for news we didn't use. Gaming Peripherals producer SciTech has been acquired by Logitech. SciTech was most recently featured as the company producing the Star Citizen co-branded joystick, mouse, and keyboard system. Ben Lesnick's 25th anniversary Wing Commander livestream featured a playthrough of Wing Commander 2. After complete radio silence from Hello Games Twitter since August 27th, Sony president Shuhi Yoshida has come out and said it's possible the developer didn't have a great PR strategy. I'm a bit miffed over this whole SciTech thing. In what sense? Well, when when it was first announced, we got on, uh, some of us got on the forums and said, you know, SciTech is really not the company you should have been choosing. You should have gone with uh, Galmont or known to make Thrustmaster because they're 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 really just a peripheral game maker. That SciTech's history and and market share was ripe for a takeover by another company and any agreements that you may make will may, may not be honored by the new company. We saw the writing for our SciTech on the wall when this was announced. You know, the community team kind of went over why they didn't pick another vendor and it was pretty much that everybody else just wanted to slap a sticker on an existing joystick and sell that. SciTech was the only one that would do something different like, uh, I guess in their case, put a trackball and a joystick. I heard their arguments, but I doubt that they didn't push hard enough. I think they talked about it. This The whole the whole co-branded joystick thing was kind of new in Chris's uh, uh, vocabulary, I think. I know they, they were talking about it. It would have been kind of cool. Somebody brought it up. They said, hey, what a good idea. And I think they just put feelers out and said, you know, we're the top crowdfunded game in the in the industry, and you know we've got a lot of players who'd be interested in. But I don't think any a lot of, any of these people really went out to the different engineering people of the of the manufacturers and said, "Look, this is really what we wanted to do." Until after someone had said yes, I just I had this whole feeling that this whole joystick thing was really botched. We haven't heard anything about the whole peripheral thing for at least six months, if not a year. I'm willing to bet the silence on the subject is probably because of this. I'm hoping CIG comes out and gives some sort of an update on what the status is with this. So personally, I was excited for that joystick. Were you guys excited for that joystick? Oh yeah, I mean, I, I it's something that I, my, my Warthog is a bit too big and too, much, uh, too complicated for, for, I think, if you're not flying an F-16, an F-4, you know, some military push-all-button kind of DHS, you know, program. It, it, it really is a bit much. And I was excited for the touchscreen LCD with, uh, you know, acting as a multifunction panel and also as an interaction device. They really could have gone somewhere with this. I mean, they really could have. It was just, oh. Well, we don't know that it's dead yet. Uh, I mean, let's not hold the funeral before we found the body. Everspace and Descent Underground are currently purchasable, but have the early access qualifier attached to their game. 
Star Citizen has a functional persistent mini-universe accessible with a donation on par with the price of many modern games, but they take pains to remind everyone that the game is still in alpha. Technically, the only AAA high-profile space sims that have been released are Elite Dangerous and No Man's Sky. The practice isn't limited to space sims either. Many multiplayer FPS and fantasy MMO games now feature an early access buy-in feature, sometimes months or even years before the full release of the game. Some people have been crying foul on this situation and say that the early access, public beta, and buy-in alpha practices are mere marketing gimmicks. The claim is that developers are simply scamming money out of their player base while they get away with putting out an incomplete, buggy game they may never finish dodging criticism with the excuse that it's not released. Others say that it's an evolution of game development, necessary because of the era of small dev teams and kickstarters. They argue that the small developers can't afford large, long-term QA teams and need the feedback from the players. Many point to No Man's Sky as a game that could have benefited from an open beta or early access trials. So, which is it? Gentlemen, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to debate for us paid public testing releases of games. Kin Shadow was the kind of student that continually went back to his teacher to have them revise his papers before the due date, while Jeff never let his teacher see his writing until the final draft on the due date. So, Kin Shadow, why is the paid testing period the new standard? So, th there's two main reasons why paid testing makes sense here. The first one is, as you mentioned, is the it's a new form of crowdfunding. And these games are labeled as alpha or beta when people are paying for them. So it's not a mystery that you are crowdfunding the game. The second big issue is that during free testing, the developer had to develop a new narrow slice of the game to not give away the game to people that weren't paying for it. With the new alpha beta pay model, they can actually give you the full game and you can pay to access it. And Jeff, your response to that? What my esteemed opponent doesn't realize is that having early access to the game is, is not something that you should have to pay for. If you want to drum up hype, you want to get people in and playing it, see how good your code is. The idea that you have to pay to play is so ingrained in these later games that it's becoming unrealistic to, to watch the game develop. All you're doing is getting a bunch of people with money who really shouldn't be testing the game in the first place. They don't know how to test. So my argument had, had nothing to do with hype. I don't think that's the, the primary issue here. The primary issue is that is getting is, is getting these people that want to do these things and that are paying for them in a crowdfunded early access fashion to do the testing. If you want to do hype, you put out a separate demo and you do it when the code is already public. Jeff, your final word on that? There was a time when testing met, actually meant testing and, and there were certain cadre of people that actually wanted to test a game and give a proper feedback. But all we've seen lately is hyperbole and nothing to do with really testing the game. They rather bitch about what color the sky should be. All right, so um, clearly a lively debate because I didn't have to prompt Kim Shadow for his response. I was a little gun shy there, sorry. Uh, you know, it's funny because I, I, beta, I beta tested WoW, if you can believe that. That's how, how long I've been doing this. Um, there was a game by Sony called Battletech uh, 3025. I remember beta testing Earth and Beyond. I beta tested the original Jumpgate back in uh, 1999. I, I beta tested as well. I, I know the kind of people that that beta test game and the kind of feedbacks that they give and you know what we're all trying to accomplish now granted these were studios games there's different kind of testing here Jeff I think that that's where we run into a problem now if you if your if your primary point of testing is to get as many people in as possible then it makes sense to give away a free version that people that gets everybody in so for like the recent Battlefield thing, it's a massive, they wanted a whole bunch of people in there to stress the servers. For Jumpgate, that makes sense. For most MMOs, you know, I, I was involved with, I think, the well, belatedly, the uh, UL beta and then some of the um, EverQuest stuff. But if you want to get a lot of people in there, it makes sense to get a lot of people in there, right? But for a lot of things, you know, it doesn't make it that much sense to get that many people in there. You just want to, you know, 
some people kicking around and testing your dialogue and stuff. Yeah, but aren't you doing aren't aren't you doing the same thing when you're going, hey, give me ten bucks and I'll let you in? No, you want you want feedback, right? And that's a reason to put it out there, right? And it doesn't if if it doesn't matter if you get like a lot of people in there, you just want some people in there, then why not charge for it, right? That's a way of keeping the amount of feedback that you get um, interesting and limited to us to a reasonable number of people and theoretically the people who are interested the people that are most interested right they're they they're, yeah. they're incentivized to actually do something and let's not forget the po- one of the focus was is is the game developers end of it too are they generating more money for uh, uh, a game that's not even finished I mean uh, or may never be finished with the idea that you know they're you know you're getting testers or is it just another little revenue stream for them to uh you know yeah i i see what you're saying there and i think it depends on who's who's charging you right if it's like this mini studio where it's obvious this money is helping to crowdfund the game that's one one discussion yeah and that's why i like crowdfunding because i I, it's why i did uh star citizen and everspace and and well these uh, these early access betas and stuff like that they are a form of crowdfunding in steam for these small people but there are a set of games where this game is going to get made no matter what this is being funded by a big company they're just charging you money right yeah so yeah I, i can see people having more problem with those like um landmark right that's a sony mmo game right and they're i, I don't even know what this current says of the, the game is because they had a bunch of uh, uh acquisitions and legal problems i don't think it's by sony anymore but the, the point was it was it was a big mmo thing it's their next step to their next everquest or whatever and the only way to get into it was by paying money to get into just the beta right that, i think can see people having a much bigger problem with that right I don't know. I, I think that there are some things that uh, publishing companies do very well, and that is, you know, they have the funding and the you know and the and the resources to develop a game. They have the QA uh, teams to monitor the progress of the game and the development. They've got community teams to manage beta testers, and um, they've got uh, marketing resources to, you know, advertise and bring uh, bring in a lot of uh, reviews and whatnot. They know how to play the media, and I think uh, in those cases they do this kind of beta testing thing really well. It's the it's the startups that change the game a little bit, so to speak. Some small house does it one way, another does it another way. And others see see them working this, and pretty soon they all start doing it. I think without this new market that we have here, we wouldn't have any of the games that we're currently talking about on this podcast, unfortunately. These are all small studios. They're all doing some form of crowdfunding, and this is in some ways a form of crowdfunding. So now you know our thoughts on it. We want to hear yours. So this week's community question, does paid testing access to games provide real invested players with the ability to genuinely assist in the development process or have the developers just found a convenient excuse to be lazy with development and grab money from their customers at the same time let us know your thoughts send an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com or post over on our show thread at guardfrequency.com now that we're all caught up with the latest news let's tune to the feedback loop and let you join in on the conversation okay buddy what's on your mind Some say he is intimately familiar with the Shanghai tunnels in Portland, and that he is the forgiving sort, eventually. As demonstrated by me being back, but all we know is he's called the Shiv, and he helped put together sweet feedback. Should death in the game have serious, possibly unavoidable negative consequences, or should it just be a regular part of gameplay with no significant penalties? We got a truckload of feedback on this one. A lot of it came through Twitter. Uh, unfortunately, in the interest of time, we had to truncate it. So we'll just say that Chris Cooper, Rolo Kip, Doc T USMC, and Asheron Attacks were all in favor of a significant penalty. Kato was also in favor, but added that anti-griefing measures were necessary after Oliver TB pointed out PvP problems in Elite Dangerous. Homer Morrison also agreed with that sentiment. And... KJL Taiwan said that heavy death mechanics actually killed his enjoyment of Eve. 
the rest of the comments follow and we had to trim some of these so apologies in advance if we somehow mangled the point of your argument. Krell says that space sims require support for joysticks. Space shooters, where you point your gun and your ship follows along, don't. In response to Everspace controller only support. I'm a fan of death mechanics that punish you for being stupid, but not being unlucky. Cosmetic damage is an interesting way to handle it. The real problem with heavy death penalty, in my honest opinion, is that it punishes the serious player far more than griefers. Big Rhino 1995 was also a fan of the cosmetic damage mechanic. Vince Ben values pork chops rates in and says, I feel there needs to be a penalty for death within the context of how you die. For instance, if you're in pirate territory and get blown away fleeing a pirate fleet, you should lose your cargo, money, etc. However, if you were killed while in friendlier space by someone just out to cause mayhem, you shouldn't lose anything, but perhaps you need to travel all the way back and resume mining. Lastly, if you pick a fight and don't win, the penalty should be harsh. Ken from Chicago chimed in and said, Game death should be minor. Per the Tron Legacy teaser, it's just a game. It's not a second job or a second life. Hashtag see what I did there. I don't want everything lost in a game death during the hour after work before sleep to please some dude's need for, quote, tension. Yup, the hardcore fans may be the loudest, but they are in the vast minority. By the way, this whole Star Citizen delay gate could have been avoided if you taught the research badgers German. We will take that under advisement. Cal 3770 says, I believe that a death penalty is a good thing in games, but any game with such a penalty needs to also have a balancing penalty for crimes against players. A karma system that makes you persona non grata in any lawful safe zone would be a start. It's all about balancing the death and criminal penalties for me. Sean Newboy writes in and says, I love the show, guys. Great job. Death penalties should exist, but they should not create a real-life financial sink. D. Evel writes in and says, I think death mechanics should be a penalty and they should be somewhat less severe than Eve's depending on where in Star Citizen you are. Death shouldn't be a regular part of gameplay because you should be getting better and better and death should be the incentive. I think when you take the risk out, you take a lot of the fun out for other people who are just better than you at combat and that forces them to leave out of no fun. Then the cargo people leave because there's no risk and they get bored and it cascades from there. Jiru writes, Having a somewhat punishing death mechanic is a way of forcing players to want to stay alive and be willing to give up goods and money in order to keep their rep and goods. This will make piracy possible. Otherwise, you're going to have to kill everyone you are able to stop. Amontillado writes in and says, It very much depends on the game. In multiplayer games that strive for an ongoing immersive suspension of belief, it is important that the characters behave in a realistic manner. Harsh penalties for failure that are felt by the player are a straightforward tool for accomplishing this, and it also serves the purpose of ratcheting up the game's excitement level. That said, one of the major hooks of an online persistent game are characters and their connections to each other. Having forces outside the player's control prematurely severs those connections, won't only ruin a player's experience, but also degrades one of the strongest draws a persistent online game can have on its player base. New games are always on the horizon, but this particular character-based community exists only here. Death penalties should discourage reckless character behavior but should also allow players to end their character's story in their own terms. Brickwall Goalie says, In single-player or offline games, I'm okay with punishing death mechanic. I have a long-standing love-hate relationship with demons slash Dark Souls. In a multiplayer online game, where something as mundane as my ISP going potentially destroy hours of gameplay, well, there's a reason I never played Diablo 3 on hardcore mode. The base pirate writes, I don't agree with the phrasing of the question assumes there are only two options. Think outside the box. The answer is out. That's sort of a function of our debate format. We often have to reduce the concept to an either-or option. Which is why other people enumerated options outside of the box. Thank yeah. You. So quite a few different ideas there. In general feedback, Fireball says, I will be at Sitcom with my organization. If you'd like to know more about us, visit our website, www.merc-corp.de Click on the flags for English or Spanish. If you visit SITCON on October the 22nd in Frankfurt, feel free to visit us. Don't worry, we also speak English. And our new Patreon this week is... Nobody. 
Well, I, I paused for dramatic effect. Ah, okay. Sorry. And this week's community question. Does paid testing access to games provide real invested players with the ability to genuinely assist in the development process? Or have the developers just found a convenient excuse to be lazy with development and grab money from their customers' pockets at the same time? Well, you know my opinion on that. Let us know your thoughts. Send an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com or post over on our show's thread at guardfrequency.com. So how was the show? Were we worth the investment despite the glitches? Or do we need to hold off until things are a lot more polished? Either way, let us know. Here's how you can get in touch with us. Why not leave us a comment on the show's post over at guardfrequency.com? Or hit us up on Twitter at guardfreak. Or leave a comment and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash guardfreak. If you're old school like us, shoot us an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com. You can also use the contact form on our website, and all the details for all the ways you can get in touch with us can be found in the show notes. Your feedback is an important part of what we do. So take a minute and tell us what's on your mind. And that brings us to the end of episode 137 of Guard Frequency. We'll be back with episode 138, so be sure to keep an eye out for our shows on our website, guardfrequency.com. But that's not all. You can also subscribe to our shows at feeds.guardfrequency.com or by searching for us on iTunes. And if you're not doing anything Friday nights, then you can always join us live over at guardfrequency.com slash live. We start recording around 10 p.m. Central. Do you like what we do? Want to help us make the best damn space sim podcast ever? Drop us an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com. And I don't know how many times we can say that in the show, but squawk at guardfrequency.com. There you get it one more time. And you can also support the show by visiting our website, clicking on the Patreon logo, and becoming a regular subscriber. For just $1.25, you'll get access to the raw recordings of our live shows, as well as being entered into our weekly draw to win some Guard Frequency goodies. We want to thank all of our Patreons who support us with their subscriptions week on week, and we'll hope you'll consider making a regular contribution, because the more support we get, the better show that we can make. Are you looking for an overly friendly wingman or two? One that tells you nice things and gives you back rubs? We're active in most space sims and would love... To have you join us. Check out the website and look under the call signs section for details on how you can fly with us. And don't forget our sister production, Priority One. They cover all things Star Trek from the TV series to the MMO, the novels, the movies, and everything in between. Be sure to track them out over at PriorityOnePodcast.com. We'd like to thank the entire team at Guard Frequency and the Priority One Network. Thanks to our community manager, Justin Chivalry Bean Lowmaster. Our artists, Ben Sanders and Simon Charlton Edwards, our staff writer, Jace Pentat, and of course, our audio engineer, Mikey. A big shout out to our syndication partner, The Bass, and special thanks to Ronald Jenkins for his permission to use his music in our show. Visit ronaldjenkins.com for more of his work. But above all, we especially want to thank you folks for tuning in. If no one's listening out there, the deep black gets pretty long. Reduce thrust. And we have our newest team member, Henry, handling things in the audio booth. A blitz with him. Already off to a great start. First up, experimental characterization of Lanthium Hexobrahide. Uh, <laughs> I knew it's going to screw it out. <laughs> I practiced it and I knew it. Six-sided six cows for the win. Yeah. And what's that in metric now? Who cares? 13. We don't. We don't have any Brits here, so who cares? <laughs> right. Sorry, I forgot. It's a banana. Oh, uh, what was the luxury liner in Star Citizen? Uh, the um. I want to say Starfarer. No, the Starfarer is the fuel hauler. Uh, <clears throat> exact opposite again. No, wrong song. That was last season. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can't think what you said hyperbole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the word you... Well, the actual pronunciation is hyperbole, but... I've made that error myself in the past. Hyperbole, yeah. Okay.
hyperbole. No, it's, it's, there, I, there, you can <laughs> sorry, cut that. You sorry, can, Jeff. That just that was just so funny to me. I, I know. Mean. I was I was thinking the word in my head, and I was going <laughs> hyperbole, hyperbole. Well, that's hyperbole. how you spell it. Is hyperbole? That's that's completely understandable. Yeah. And if you were if you were if you were reading it, it wouldn't have been funny. But because you were just saying it, that's why it was funny. <laughs> I know. It's like if somebody said um, Dozier, you know, instead of Dossier, <laughs> you know, anyway. The one that always got me was the name Siobhan. Yeah, well, uh, wait till you see it in Irish. Sumsoy is intimately familiar with the Shanghai Tunnels. Oh my God, did I do a Southern accent? Hold I don't think it quite got there, but... <laughs> Shanghai, yeah, I don't know what that was. I believe that a death penalty is a good thing in games, but any any game with such a death. <clears throat> and this week's community question: Does paid testing access to games provide? Oh boy, I read that so wrong. And that brings us to the episode. Yeah. Okay, Henry. You got <laughs> Henry. <nuts>. Henry's. <laughs> <laughs> Every time you click, it gives us a little flag on the document with your name. So. It looks like there's a colonial lemming running around here. <laughs> Shows as well as being entered into our weekly draw to win sard... Win sardines. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't think once you said hyperbole.